let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, this morning we are blessed. We are truly blessed to have your word in our hands, whether it be in the print form, in the physical Bible, or it is in the electronic form, in the digital Bible. Lord, we are blessed, truly blessed to have your word in our hands. For we know your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrows, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from your sight, but all are naked and exposed to your eyes, to whom we must give account. We ask that through the study of your word this morning, may our hearts be encouraged, may our hearts be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you assure us that your word will not return to you void, but you accomplish its purpose. So Father, may your word speak to us this morning. For I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday after service, we receive a check of $50,000. $50,000. At the back of the check, it was written these words, Jesus is Lord of, of all or not at all. When I look at the check, I saw the date is correct. The dollar is correct. Singapore dollar. I have to pinch my face to make sure that it is true, that the check is true. And true enough, as I pinch my face, I woke up. $50,000, sing dollar, gone. How I wish it could be used for God's kingdom, for the extension of His kingdom. Last Sunday, we talked about Jesus is Lord of all or not at all. It's a, it's a very uh, common phrase used by C.H. Spurgeon as well as Hudson Taylor. And as you look at the background, if you have your bulletin, please take out your bulletin and then you please track along with me as we come to God's Word, the study of God's Word. Last Sunday, we talked about Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 29. We talked about the truth of the Gospel and Christ. Now, Paul wrote the letter to the, the Colossians to warn a group of believers who were confronted with false teaching. At its core, the heresy undermined the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Now, those four teachers told the believers that they needed something more. Something more than just, just their relationship with Jesus. Something more to bring them to a genuine spiritual experience. The fact of the matter is this. The gospel is Jesus only and Jesus fully. Jesus only, Jesus fully. Christ is sufficient and supreme to redeem sinful men and women from sin. Remember we talked about the real thing? And we said three things. Number one, we are set apart in Christ. We are set apart in Christ and we receive our inheritance, our identity in Christ and Christ alone. We are set apart. We are secured in Christ because of who Christ is. He is our Savior who saves us and reconciles us to Him. 
And then finally, we, are, we get our semblance in Christ. And therefore, we can rejoice in suffering for Christ. When we are recon- when we, and we can reveal Christ. That means worship Him. So we know that Christ is the real thing. Jesus is Lord of all, or He's not Lord at all. What is the importance? This morning, we want to examine the truth of Christ again. Christ and the Christian. We know who Christ is. He saved us from sin. But after that, what happens? After that, what happens? Are we supposed to figure out how to live the Christian life? Are we supposed to figure out for ourselves how to grow in Christ-likeness? With adopting certain rituals, let's say we adopt certain rituals, certain behavior and beliefs, help us. Help us in our Christian journey. Now, the answer is important for us, and this will be our study. For some of us, again, this will be a time of uh, reminder, a time of rediscovery of the truth. For others, this may well be a first-time discovery, never thought of before. So, let's take out your worship bulletin, and you find the outline in today's message. We are going to Colossians chapter 2. Now, the first point is fullness in Christ. Let us track along the verse. For I want you to know how great a struggle, Paul says, I have for you and for those at Laodicea. I have, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Although I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see you, see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The first point is fullness in Christ. Now in verse 2, the four Paul reminds the believers of three elements. He talks about encouraging heart, which happens when they are united in love, and as it's settled in the understanding of the truth. In fact, this is the prayer I pray just now as we begin as we begin this sermon. And so therefore, together in the community of faith of believers, two things will happen. Now, when we look at verse, uh, okay, these are the two things that will happen, rooted and built up in Christ, as well as receive Christ's fullness. Verse 6 goes like this. Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. Verse 6 will be the anchor verse for our study. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, I just want to unpack this. Jesus and Lord, sandwiched between is Christ. Now, Jesus and Lord are modifiers of the basic title of Christ. Okay? Receive Christ Jesus, followed by receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Receive Christ Jesus. We must accept Jesus as Savior. Okay? No one can live the Christian life without being saved from sin. And to be saved from sin, one had, one had to receive Christ. Verse 6 says, as we receive Jesus Christ, now, Jesus is a term meaning the Lord is salvation. And so, first thing we need to do as we look at verse 6 is that we receive Jesus as Savior. But there's more. We receive Jesus as Savior, we receive Jesus as sovereign. 
Now, Jesus and Lord are one person, but so often we are, pre- we are prepared to accept His saviorhood without acknowledging His sovereignty. Indeed, this is one of our greatest failures, both in our sharing and preaching on the gospel. Because it is a contradiction, it is a contradiction in terminology to name Jesus Lord, but only, only over a certain part of our life. No, Christ can only be Lord of the whole life. And so in our sharing, we must ask, have you accepted Jesus as Savior? Jesus Christ, the word Jesus, salvation. We also must ask, have you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, sovereign, Savior, and sovereign? Now, verse 6 says that to walk, to walk means step by step, day by day, we have to conduct our life in conscious submission to the Savior and the Lord of our life. Now, why? And how can we do that? Again, by our own efforts, certainly not. So let's look at the first point, rooted and built up in Christ. Rooted is in the perfect tense. Perfect tense meaning it is a once and for all event. It's a once and for all experience of being permanently rooted and it speaks of our eternal security. This is once and for all, our internal security in Christ. Because when God plants a tree, He never uproots it. In Psalm chapter 1, David talks about the man of God who is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. The tree that is planted by rivers of water, a rooted tree has the prerequisites of life and a rooted life has security as well as sufficiency. And so by its roots, the tree is established and strengthened to grow deep and to grow up. Rooted and built up in Christ. Now, while rooted is in the perfect tense, the word built up the word built up is in the present tense. Now, here is a play of word. Present tense means indicating a continual process. A continual process. And the idea is development and progress. While we are, we are rooted, but we are, and that's a once and for all thing, God will plant us there, but our building is a, one, is a continual process and there's progress. But buildings are not completed in an instant. Nor do buildings build themselves. Buildings do not build by themselves. Buildings are not completed in an instant. They are constructed by conscious planning. Conscious planning and work. Buildings require an architect, a plan, construction materials and a builder. And in the case of the Christian, Jesus Christ is the master builder. He's the master architect. And therefore, we are to count on him in total obedience. Jesus is saviour. Jesus is sovereign. I want to talk a bit about philosophy before going to the next point. Now, philosophy, philosophy is made of two words, a combination of phileo and sophia. Phileo means love, sophia means wisdom. Now, Paul is not, he's not putting down the words, the, the concept of philosophy, right? As it means the love of wisdom. Everything that has to do with theories about God, Theories about the world, the meaning of life, these are called philosophy. Both in the pagan and Jewish school of Paul's day as well as the NUS and NTUs of today. There's nothing wrong with philosophy. There's nothing wrong. What Paul was warning against was a dangerous philosophy made out of Hebrew Judaism and Greek Gnosticism. Judaism and Gnosticism, now without going into the history of these philosophies, it is only necessary for us to remember that. 
this philosophy is a dangerous philosophy, not according to Christ, verse 8. The two things we learn as, as just now we, we talk about is rooted and built up. The second thing is receive Christ's fullness, verse 9 to 10. Now when false teachers attack, it usually attacks on two fronts. Two fronts. Number one, the person of Christ. Number two, the believer's identity in Christ. Verse 9 and 10 says like this, For in Him, that means Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and verse 10 says, And you have been filled with Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Point number one was fullness in Christ. Now, false teaching fails to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God and undermine His uniqueness as the God-man. And false teachers propose that something more, something extra is needed to make us complete in Christ, something more. It could be new knowledge. We need new knowledge that is only revealed to the cult leader. Or it could be ecstatic experiences which are supposed to bring us into new insights in our Christian journey. Or it could be legalistic activity which is used as a proof of security. Fullness in Christ. Now, have you tasted something exquisite in your life? For example, if I can use food as an illustration, chicken rice or chili crab. These are the one and two uh, bestsellers in Singapore. Have you, have you tasted it? And once you have tasted it, all other food, all other chicken rice and chili crab pays in comparison. All other food out of chicken rice and chili crab pays in comparison. Because you have tasted it, and you know that hey, nothing else satisfies. Now, if I use food as illustration, it shows my. Huh? So let's not use food as illustration, but come on, if you talk about worship, if you have worshipped Christ as a King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Revelation 19 16, nothing else pays in comparison. If you have served Christ and served God to the best of your ability in His strength, nothing else can be a close substitute. We have our fullness in Christ. That's the first point. The second point we're going to talk about is we have our forgiveness in Christ. Verses 11 to 15. Let's look at the text again. Verse 11. In Him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Christ from the dead. Verse 13, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross of Calvary. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Now Paul picks two familiar rituals in these verses, but what is his significance? Right? Circumcision and baptism. Now circumcision, in Genesis chapter 17, God is the one who instituted circumcision as a physical sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Right? A Jewish male will be circumcised because that is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And so every male will be circumcised as a testimony that he was in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. The trouble is that the Jews began 
mistakenly to think that the physical ritual was sufficient all by itself. Come to think of it, if we look at it, why is it only the man are circumcised and not the woman? Right? So it cannot be a physical act that brings people to God. But the, the Jews, especially men, began mistakenly to think that the physical ritual was sufficient all by itself. The second point we talk about will be the cross, but let's continue with this idea. Now, the circumcision that Paul is talking is the spiritual surgery, not the physical surgery of removing our sinful nature. What we were in Adam, what we were in Adam, fallen, corrupt, Christ had destroyed. And this happened at the moment of salvation when we were spiritually baptized into Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible is clear that physical circumcision cannot save anyone. The two verses are reflected on the screen. Physical circumcision cannot save anyone. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, it says that you circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Foreskin of your heart. For the Lord your God is the God God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So in the Old Testament, already in Deuteronomy, when Moses gave the Torah, it is clear that circumcision doesn't save. And Paul addresses this in Romans, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 2. Paul says, for no one is a Jew. No one is a Jew who is merely one hourly. Let me say, yeah, just one hourly. Last year I mentioned about certain features of the, the person on his face. No one is a Jew who is merely hourly. No, it's circumcision outward and physical. It's not outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. Again, it's a matter of the heart. And he added, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So the Bible is clear that physical circumcision cannot save anyone. Circumcision. The second ritual that is familiar to the, the, the Jews is this, baptism. Now Paul is talking about spiritual baptism where we are united and identified with Christ in his death, burial and resurrection. It's not you jump in the swimming pool and you come up and you become baptized, a member of the church. Paul is talking about we are, ident- we are united as well as identified with Christ. Death, burial, resurrection. That means that we ought to walk in newness of life. Romans 6.4 says, we were, de- we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul reminded the Christians in Colossae that the significance of circumcision and baptism, not just physical rituals, right? The spiritual significance. But there was something else. Significance of the cross verses 13 to 15. Now, in this section, Paul talks about the cancellation of a debt we could never repay. Verse 13 to 15 goes like this. And you who were dead in your trespasses, that is us, and the, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross at Calvary on Good Friday. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. Now, two things comprise the, the record of debt. The record of that is like an IOU. Um, nowadays, I do not know whether we still practice this IOU. Perhaps we are not um, boring uh, uh, nation or bor- uh, group of boring people. But 
one of the ways you probably see, especially it happens in HDB uh, leaf landings, the people are very uh, clever. Instead of uh, writing in very ex, uh, explicit, it's very implicit. Sometimes it's in uh, dollar signs. Sometimes it's letters like uh, O, that means zero, O, capital O, dollar, and O, P. All right? Okay? So it's an IOU. Now, what Christ did is that, hey, what, what Christ did is that, hey, this record of debt, okay, because of the regulations of the law, the Torah, the commandments, as well as our offenses, and nail it to the cross, right? God nailed it to the cross, getting rid of it permanently, permanently, all right? You don't have to spray paint on your leaf landing, it's permanently, it's gone. Now, the question I ask ourselves, how can he do that? Hey, how can he do that? Just spray paint over the thing, he's still there, you know? You spray, they will re-spray again, right? How can God do that? Doesn't that make the law cheap? When we, when we sin against God, and God says, oh, never mind, I close one eye, it's okay, you're forgiven. As long as you believe, it's fine. It doesn't make the law cheap when guilty people are set free without having to pay for their crimes. Think about this. The society we live in, if somebody scratch your car, if somebody bang your car, somebody damage your property, and the person can go scot-free without making any restitution, how can that be possible, Right? So how can God do that? It makes the law cheap when we who are guilty are set free without having to pay. The answer is this, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because God himself paid the debts when his son died on the cross. God upheld, upheld the holiness of his own law when Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sin. God not only erased the IOU, but he also took it away and he nailed it on the cross. Singaporean businessman was on his uh, trip to the South Seas in the Pacific and he built a relationship, friendship with a particular uh, pearl uh, diver. Now this, uh, the, the local person, is, uh, he has his business, a thriving business in Pearl. And so as the years go by, these two men became close friends. And uh, the time has come eventually for this businessman, Singaporean businessman, to leave and come back to home. And at the last day when they have dinner, this, uh, the owner of the pearl company gave this Singaporean businessman a very exquisite, very beautiful pearl. I'm not a pearl expert, so I, I can't really tell you what's so beautiful, but it's, I suppose it's all round, very shining, the lustres and so forth. And so this Singaporean businessman, he was perhaps uh, in his uh, naivete, he said, hey, uh, I thank you, sir, how much? No. Uh, then the man looked at him in his eyes and he didn't say anything. And so the Singaporean businessman said, oh, okay, I mean, maybe we have, I have stepped on somebody's toe. So he went back home, the pearl in his hand. So as he went back to, uh, to his hotel, he examined the pearl, he realized, oh, this is really exquisite. Come on, I must do something. Maybe I, he called his wife, can you send something over? Maybe I want to send him a gift in exchange for this. Since he, he didn't want to accept money. So the next day, the package arrived and he went to see this man and said, hey, uh, Mr. So-and-so, he said, I have this. Yesterday, the pearl, wow, really good. Now, open this and you see for yourself. It's also very good. The man who received the gift, he didn't even open. Then he told the, the businessman, he said, look, let me tell you a story. The pearl that I gave you yesterday, it was actually founded by my son. It was founded by my son 10 years ago. My son was a perfect diver. 
He's as good as me, if not better. So on the day when he took the dive, everything was fine. Unfortunately, halfway through the dive, there was a thunderstorm. My son never made it to the surface. We organized a search party. I personally discovered the body. In his hands was the pearl that I gave to you. So he told the Singapore businessman, can you pay a price for this? Is it fair? Christ took our sin, the IOU, dollar, pay dollar, and nail it to the cross without you having to pay a single cent and therefore cheapen the love of God? No. Because only Christ himself can represent us, can take our place. On the cross, Jesus won a a decisive victory, making clear to the universe that Satan is a vanquished enemy. Satan is a vanquished enemy. We do not walk in, continue in sin. We do not walk in sin. But, But this does not mean that we will not have conflict that our life is lovey-dovey? No. Because the devil, he has been defeated, yes, but he has not yet considered defeat. He has not yet considered defeat. He has been overthrown, but he has not yet been fully eliminated. And Satan continues to harass us. That's why you've got false teaching, whether in church or outside the church. We talk about the fullness in Christ, forgiveness in Christ, and finally the freedom in Christ. Two points. First of all, we are not enslaved. We are no longer enslaved. Secondly, we do not belong to the world. Now, verse 16 and 17 says like this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. In question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And 17, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, the fullness, the forgiveness, the free, and, and the freedom in ours to motivate us to maintain our devotion to the one who gave us that fullness, Christ himself, and set us free. So we have no reason to be enslaved by legalistic living. We have no reason to be enslaved by mystical experiences. We have no reason to be enslaved by rigid self-denial because our fullness is in Christ. We saw that in verse 10, and verse 11 and 15. But apparently some people in Colossae tried to convince the believers that spirituality Spirituality was based on how well they observed certain codes of conduct. Two areas. Diet and days. Diet, what you eat or drink. Days, religious festivals. For them, they had the new moon celebration. Sabbath day. The false teachers said that true spirituality is maintained on a particular diet. Observe and observe all the right holy days. The Bible tells us that we are not enslaved. Christ says, know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now the question we want to ask ourselves, is the Christian, you and I, bound to strict observance of diets and days? If you, if you go on diet because of this, it's fine. But as a Christian, are we bound to strict observance of diets and days in our lives? Hebrews chapter 9 says like this, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Diets. 
What about days? Paul tells the, uh, the believers in Galatia, verse 8, Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you do not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more, you, have turned, you want to turn back to become slaves of the world. And verse 10 says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I think in this aspect, Paul was actually almost screaming to the people. You have been saved and now you are turned back again. We are not enslaved. And secondly, we do not belong to the world. Before I talk about this uh, slide, but let's talk about this. <clears throat> now, today, what are the issues that we are dealing with? When we say we are not enslaved, the days and diets, the riches, are you worshipping are you worshiping Christ? Because you think you can gain God's favor? If I don't come to church on Sunday, God will be very unpleased with me. He'll be very, very angry with me. The God I worship is a tyrant God. We have to do certain things because this is the only way that we can be accepted into the community of faith. No. We should not be enslaved. Secondly, we do not belong to the world. Now, this is Francis Chan, a pastor. He says this, something is wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. When our lives make sense to unbelievers, something is wrong. When we walk in the Lord, our lives will be an offence to many unbelievers because they are offended, not because of us. Your good friend, your neighbour, your family members as well, relatives, they are not offended by who you are unless you have something in you that is so uh, porcupine-like. But they are offended because of who you worship. Right. So in one sense, we can take, take, take courage, we can take uh, uh, comfort. Look, it's between them and Christ. But the reality is still that, hey, because of Christ in your life, the more you reflect Christ, the more you have Christ in your life, the more, the more you, have, you face challenges and issues for unbelievers. And something is wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. Now, the things that we do today, we want to ask ourselves, are we doing that in order to gain God's favour? For example, are you serving in a particular ministry because you think it is something that, that will get others' applause, will gain God's approval and man's applause? Most important of all, are you living a life with all the external trappings of Christianity, of piety and devotion, but you do it out of obligation and not out of the genuine love and gratitude, humble adoration for Christ? Now, this one will show, this one will show in your life, if you do it out of obligation, it won't last very long before people can see that you actually hunkered down, you're hunched, you don't have the real joy in Christ, the real joy of Christ. Christ is central, not rules, not experience. We do not belong, belong to God. If we do not belong to the world, sorry. Now, Paul warns against something called asceticism. Now, asceticism is a term that we, we use for people who abstain from uh, pleasure, people who abstain from uh, abstain, and also people who avoid the world. Now, this is a religious philosophy which teaches that depriving the body, we deprive our body of its normal desires. It's a means of achieving greater holiness as well as approval from God. And so we fast. And so we do certain things because we want not only to achieve greater holiness, but we want to achieve 
great approval from God. Now, Paul tells us in verse 20 to 23, he says, If with Christ, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to the and teachings, verse 23, the last verse, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Self-denial is a self-imposed form of spirituality. It's all appearance, external appearance only, appearance of wisdom, appearance of piety. It certainly looks spiritual when someone goes through all sorts of sacrifice supposedly to bring them closer to God. Asceticism has taken different shapes over time. People wear old clothes. People abstain from certain food. People live certain life. They don't take public transport. They walk, so on and so forth. Why? Because they think this will bring us closer to God. I want to experience what the world is, is experiencing. Prolonged fasting, for example. But the Bible tells us that asceticism has no value in restraining sensual indulgence. Interesting, isn't it? Do you think that if I abstain myself from certain rich food with high cholesterol and so on and so forth, certain practices that you know, uh, makes me uh, 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 more worldly, so on and so forth, the verse tells us that, hey, asceticism has no value in restraining sensual indulgence. So it's quite scary, actually, when I look at this and I think, and I have to check myself. Right? All the external trappings, but internally, hey, you cannot restrain your sensual indulgence. Fullness in Christ, forgiveness in Christ, freedom in Christ. What is freedom in Christ? I have a saying in, in my family, I have four daughters, and uh, now they have grown up, of course, but when they're much younger, I used to tell them this phrase, when, when you are in the pool, swimming pool, daddy will be in the pool. Right, daddy, of course. Huh? Okay. So they can swim, they can play in the water. Right? They have freedom to do what they like. Now, the reason I paused, because I used to be quite, yeah, yeah, but time has changed. Okay? When I jump in the water, the water splashes up. But I say, when you are in the pool, daddy is in the pool. Right? Mommy is watching, I am eager. But today, of course, when you're in the pool, Chete is in the pool. Chete means uh, sister. All right, for those who are visitors, Chete means sister is in the pool. I, I, they got three, they got elder sisters. Right? Now, my children can experience the true freedom because they know daddy is with them in the pool. Whatever they experience, daddy is experiencing. That means nothing will happen without daddy being there to take care of it. They can just enjoy themselves because they know I'm there. That is true freedom. Only in Christ. For Christ will take care of whatever happens in a believer's life. Conclusion. Christ is the fullness of God. And Christians have been given fullness in Christ. No one should tell you, no one should tell me that we need to do something. We need to be something. In order to receive his blessing, that is a lie. That is the teaching of heretics. We are completely complete in Christ. Last Sunday, the truth of the gospel and Christ. No Christ, no gospel. Today, the truth of, the, of Christ and the Christian. Application, very quickly. Christ is fully God. Nothing needs to be added to him. 
We come before Christ with emptiness. Total surrender. Christ is fully God. Nothing needs to be added to Him. Secondly, Christians have the fullness of Christ. Nothing needs to be added to you. We go to the cross. In front of the cross, all of us are equal in God's eyes. Because there's nothing much we can do. Nothing else we can do can elevate us much higher than any other person. Before the cross of Christ, we are the same. Application, Christ is fully God. Nothing needs to be added to Him. And Christian, you and I have the fullness of Christ according to this passage. We have the fullness of Christ. And nothing needs to be added to you. Let us pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your teaching this morning. We pray, Father, that You help us to examine our lives afresh. We can say that Christ is King and King of kings and Lord of lords. We can tell ourselves that He is sufficient in everything. But Lord, we pray that You will examine our hearts so that what we say reflects the deep repentance of our heart. Remind us again that you, Christ, is full and nothing needs to be added to you. Remind us again that we have the fullness of Christ. Nothing needs to be added into our life. But we pray, Father, that you help us to be very clear and cognizant of this and on a regular basis to keep Jesus as central. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us rise for a song of response.